Support comes from WFAE members and Mazda of South Charlotte, focused on applying Mazda's customer-centric approach for vehicle design to car buying and servicing in order to create an experience centered around the customer. More at MazdaofSouthCharlotte.com. This is Charlotte Talks. I'm Mike Collins. The South Carolina primary is this Saturday. Most polls show Donald Trump in the lead. The CBS News YouGov poll has Trump with 65 percent and Nikki Haley at 30 percent. And that is a spread, for those of you who are math challenged, of 45 points. The North Carolina primary is just around the corner. Early voting has begun. He leads here, too, among Republican voters, and he recently chose the head of the state Republican Party, Michael Watley, as his choice to take over for Ronna McDaniel to lead the Republican National Committee with former North Carolina or North Carolinian and daughter-in-law Lara Trump as his pick for vice chair. There is no question that Trump has reshaped the GOP in his own image and likeness, his approach to politics, indeed his approach to democracy, foreign relations, common decency, and the 91 felony counts he's been charged with have many, including Republicans, concerned. But most Republicans are reluctant to speak up, not wanting to be the subject of Trump's invective. But how do voters feel? How have Donald Trump and Trumpism affected this state? And who has the edge here among independent or unaffiliated voters, Trump or President Joe Biden? We look at that and more this hour with Dr. Michael Bitzer, professor of politics and history at Catawba College, wearing a very cheery bow tie to get me in the mood for this conversation. (laughs) Welcome back. Good to be with you, as always. And Brian Anderson returns. He is a freelance journalist covering North Carolina politics and the creator of the Anderson Alerts Substack newsletter. Brian, thank you for joining us again. It's a mouthful. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. (laughs) You're welcome. So, Michael, I'm starting with you. We have the South Carolina primary this week. Early voting, as I said, is underway in North Carolina. Super Tuesday and other primaries are, are, are on the way. But is the cake already baked? I mean, is there any chance, a a snowball's chance in you-know-where, that Donald Trump won't just walk away with this? Why are we voting? Well, we're voting because this is the process of selecting presidential nominees. But we have never in our modern political history had a front-runner candidate at this level with this amount of sport fail to get the party nomination. So I I think that that we are marching towards Donald Trump uh, receiving yet again the Republican Party nomination. He won't won't get it without a fight, particularly from Nikki Haley. The question Mm -hmm. is, how long does she stay if she gets blown out by 35 or more points in her own home state? Do you think she's sticking in the race in the hopes that... uh... No, she can't win any of the primaries, but maybe he'll get embroiled in his uh, legal situation and have to drop out or be pushed out. And there she is, ready to go. I I think that that is certainly a calculus that she is perhaps making. Uh, You know, certainly other candidates, Ron DeSantis, for example, suspended his campaign if something were to happen to Donald Trump and he is no longer viable as the party nominee, all of these folks are going to be back into the mix. So I think certainly having the dynamic for the Haley campaign of I, I hung through till the bitter end, 
maybe something that she can sell to a Republican convention. So, Brian, as I mentioned, uh, uh, Donald Trump is 45 points ahead in the latest uh, CBS News YouGov poll in South Carolina, uh, and he he is further ahead in North Carolina. Um, uh, that's perhaps because Nikki Haley was the former governor down there, and she has more perhaps fans than she does in North Carolina. But uh, here, the margin is 76.3 to Haley's 19.3%. Among Republican politicians in North Carolina, indeed among Republican voters, could there be any surprises at all in this state's presidential primary? If there's going to be any surprises, it's not going to be in the presidential election uh, for North Carolina, certainly. I mean, this is a state that has been staunchly loyal to Trump in 2016, 2020, electing him in both general election contests statewide. Uh, He remains the figurehead of the Republican Party here. He has ties to North Carolina, as you alluded to, with Laura Trump, his son, Donald Trump Jr., is coming to stump for Addison McDowell in a congressional race. So Trump's presence is really felt already in the state, and it seems more of a question of when than if he'll be the Republican nominee. So we have uh, Donald Trump in North Carolina, 57 points ahead of Nikki Haley at this juncture. It all may change later on, but it might widen even more as we go particularly if she loses in South Carolina, Michael. Uh, This is essentially a race, however, between two incumbents, Trump and President Biden. Have we ever seen anything like this in our lifetimes? In our lifetimes? No. I mean, it it, it is certainly, you know, not unprecedented. I mean, we had Grover Cleveland uh, make his return bid and win, but this is fairly unusual. Typically what happens if an incumbent president loses a bid for re-election, they say, you know what, the American people have spoken, the voters have indicated their will, they want to go in another direction. I'm going to go off and become the grand statesman of my political party or, you know, do things that that I want to focus on, recognizing what the voters have said. Donald Trump didn't recognize that. And I think what he's trying to do is to reassert and continue to assert his dominance over the Republican Party, which is very evident to me. Well, he doesn't have to do very much to reassert that dominance. He seems to have uh, built that dominance in the last uh, eight years and kept it. As a matter of fact, it's growing. I, and you mentioned that we've never seen a, 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 a race like this before on the Republican side, uh, or any side for that matter. Um, but is it more than simply simple popularity? It's almost a cult leader and his cult followers in terms of the way it looks. Well, if, if you think about party politics and think about what a political party is. It is basically core valued in the party in the electorate. It's the base voters. And for what I consider since 2015, the base voters of the Republican Party have spoken and have influenced the party as an organization. Michael Watley, the chair of the North Carolina Republican Party, soon to become what we all expect to be the RNC chair, uh, was very much within the Trump domination. The party in government those folks that get elected have become more and more aligned with Donald Trump, and Donald Trump has forced out Republicans who challenged him, Liz Cheney, for example. So this has become a party, very much a a modern Republican party, not of Reaganism, but of Trumpism. 
Brian, there's a news story this morning that because in South Carolina, you can vote in either primary. It doesn't matter uh, whether you're a Democrat or a Republican. You can just choose to vote in one party's primary or the other. And there are Republicans who are who believe that there's a whole a concerted effort in South Carolina to get Democrats to vote in the Republican primary as some sort of spoiler technique. That can't happen here. You have to be an independent here to be able to vote in either party. But if there's a move, if there is a move like that in South Carolina, could there be one here among independents? Are Democrats pushing independents to vote in the Republican primary to act as a spoiler for Donald Trump? Have you heard any of that in early voting? Well, unaffiliated voters here in North Carolina, they are... Uh, we saw that the similar effort that in Madison Cawthorn's race over in the Asheville area, where there was a push among uh, Democrats who were unaffiliated voters, which are the largest voting bloc in the state, very much worth adding and, and underlining that. Uh, but th this is something that might tilt a, I'm thinking of a Madison Cawthorn, Chuck Edwards, nail biter race. It's hard to imagine such an effort overturning a 35, 40 plus point margin where Trump is ahead. Even if you had all of this concerted effort and it magically happened, it's it's still highly unlikely to be successful. But so I, I have not heard of such an effort here statewide in North Carolina for, for getting Nikki Haley in. Okay. So we know uh, that congressional and general assembly district voting districts in North Carolina have been gerrymandered to a fare thee well to favor one party over the other. Uh, that can't happen. The gerrymandering doesn't matter in, in the presidential race in these primaries. So could this be the truest test, Brian, of whether we are a red state, a blue state, or a purple state? Or will we have to wait to November to figure that out? I mean, well, it is a red-leaning state. We'll have to wait till November to see exactly how red-leaning or whether there's enough uh, animosity toward Trump over the years to get it to flip. But if you look at recent cycles, usually the incumbent party or the incumbent does not do well the next time they're as well the next time they're running. So Trump, he won by three plus points in 2016 in North Carolina, uh, by one plus point in 2020. So if that momentum covers 2024 as well, Trump could be in trouble. But if you look at it as Biden lost by one and a half points or so in 2020, you could see that deficit increase and him lose by more in 2024. Uh, Michael, the Democrats want the Congress back. They certainly want the House back. They want to make they want to maintain control of the Senate. They'd like Joe Biden or somebody who with the D in, after their name in, in the White House. Um, how important and we have in North Carolina, we have a, a, a governor's race. We have an attorney general's race that pits two high profile uh, candidates from both parties together. How important in national politics will North Carolina turn out to be in this cycle? I think certainly North Carolina is going to be at the forefront of the November uh, election cycle. You know, certainly with the new congressional map, Republicans are going to pick up at least three seats. That helps them build a little bit of a cushion, but it could get offset by a state like New York. That's probably going to have their districts redrawn. Wisconsin has had their districts redrawn. So certainly the battle over the House that will probably end up in a very sizable, you know, dynamic of what we're seeing now, very close margins, 
North Carolina is going to be at the forefront. I think for the governor's race, this is the governor's race of this cycle. Very few states have gubernatorial races in presidential years. I think this one is probably going to be the most competitive and potentially also the most expensive governor's race that we could potentially see in modern political history. So North Carolina has got a lot to contribute towards November's general election. And I think I'm right about this. In 2020, North Carolina had 20 electoral votes. This time around, we have 21. I guess that's because of the census. Is that is that accurate? Well, we we have so we have we had um, 15. Now we have 16 electoral votes uh, in that regard. And that's based on the population. Yes, based on the census. But more importantly, how many representatives we have in the U.S. House of Representatives, how many senators we have combine those two and you get the total of a state's electoral votes. So uh, that's probably we're not alone in that. Things have changed for a lot of states. Oh, yes. It would seem oh, yeah. to me. So we'll, yep. but does that help us in any way become more important in these presidential contests? Oh, yes. I mean, you know, North Carolina is, you know, if if the South is the Republican base of electoral votes, they can't afford to lose states like Virginia, uh, Georgia, Florida and North Carolina. If they lose, you know, two out of those four, potentially three out of those four, the pathway to getting to the White House to 270 electoral votes is a huge undertaking. So North Carolina is going to be a competitive battleground state for some time, and both sides are looking at and saying, how do we reinforce what the natural dynamics are already in this state? I think voters know almost everything that they can know, unless they just get their news from one source, about both candidates on both sides. We know what we're getting with Joe Biden. We know what we got with uh, Donald Trump last time. We know what he's promising this time. We also know a lot of the things that he's embroiled in uh, over which uh, he has no control. I'm talking about his legal battle. So when we come back, we'll talk about the legal considerations in all of this. And uh, his uh, recent comments about our role in the world and our European allies and how that may sit with voters in this state when we come back at Charlotte Talks on WFAE. Support comes from WFAE members and Mazda of South Charlotte. Using Mazda's customer-centric approach to cars to create a car buying and servicing experience where the customer is the center of their business. More at MazdaOfSouthCharlotte.com. It's Charlotte Talks on listener-funded 90.7 WFAE and WFAE.org. I'm Mike Collins. We're talking politics today in advance of Saturday South Carolina primary and the North Carolina primary coming up and the influence of Donald Trump on voters in the Republican Party and the Trumpism or the Trump the Trumpification, there's the word, of, uh, of North Carolina politics with Michael Bitzer, professor of politics and history at Catawba College, and Brian Anderson, freelance journalist covering North Carolina politics and the creator of the Anderson Alerts Substack newsletter. That should be a tongue twister. Brian, uh, Donald Trump was just uh, found liable for sexual abuse in the E. Jean Carroll case and fined twice, once for his liability and the second time for his continuing to libel uh, uh, Carroll. The judge in that case bluntly stated that Trump raped Carroll. That, that was not the decision of the jury, but the, but the judge said that in the course of the trial. Last week, uh, Trump was ordered to pay $355 million plus interest. So it's going to amount, by the time this is all over, it will amount to about a half a billion dollars if that number stands 
for lying about his wealth and committing financial fraud. He faces a trial over trying to illegally conceal and maintain or keep uh, top-secret documents at Mar-a-Lago. He faces federal charges for the January 6th insurrection and charges of racketeering and election interference in Georgia. There are others, but who can keep them straight? 91 counts in all. Is anybody in Republican circles in North Carolina talking about this as we ramp up to these elections? Are they concerned about it, or is it just water off a duck's back? Uh, well, uh, it's quite the list you named there, and that's for, for voters. This is someone who, even before all this, has had accusations of uh, inappropriate relationships with women, paying off a porn star, this was known, uh, multiple yeah, bankruptcies. And for that trial's about to start. I didn't even yeah. mention that one, yes. So all, there's there's a lot about Donald Trump that's been known to voters in previous election cycles that didn't seem to matter. If there is one that would seem to matter most to voters I speak with, it would be over this uh, what happened on January 6th and his role in that. And Jack Smith, special counsel, bringing that case against Donald Trump because people knew about Stormy Daniels. Uh, they knew about accusations surrounding E. Jean Carroll, but this January 6th case is really going to matter potentially to these unaffiliated voters who are, we're talking, we transition from Republican primary to general election. That's who you need to appeal to. And Trump has a solid base, but at the end of the day, to win a statewide election, you do have to win over moderates, independent-minded people, and that could hurt his standing there the most. Of those cases you saw, that's the one that I could see having the biggest significance. You know, Michael, you're a professor of politics and history, so I need your perspective on this. That list of uh, potential legal issues that Trump has faced and continues to face, if, that, if, it, if it had been an ordinary person, you or me or Brian, it would be mind-boggling. It is even, I don't even know how have a word for it when it comes to a presidential candidate. Any one of these things, any one of them, would have disqualified a candidate for dog catcher 10 years ago, five years ago. What's up? What's going on here? Why hasn't it been disqualifying? Uh, because Donald Trump has rewritten so many, not just of the rules of American politics, but the norms of American politics. And but he's power... not Harry Potter. He doesn't have a magic wand that, 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 that makes you think the way he wants you to think. Why do people... Just ignore it all. I would contend that Donald Trump does make his base think the way he wants them to think. And so whatever he espouses, whatever his rhetoric is, it is instantaneous buy-in by a significant majority of Republican base voters. However, let me cite two examples of what I think could be the potential Achilles heel when it comes to these issues in both Iowa and New Hampshire. And we'll have to see if the South Carolina exit poll has this. But in both of the first two primary and caucus state exit polls, there was a question asked, if Donald Trump were to be convicted of a crime, would you consider him fit to be president? And in both states, a majority of Republican voters said yes, but a significant minority said no, he would not be fit to be president. And if you are losing 
potentially 20, 30, maybe 40% in some key states of Republican-aligned or identified voters that should be normally 95 to 97% voting for you, that to me is the kind of canary in coal mine for November's general election. But as I, it, I had I, a different Achilles heel to, to add, if I'm, if okay, I, sure. May, I, I think for me, what stands out is I would go on the campaign trail in 2016, see Trump at all these North Carolina rallies, thousands and thousands of people there, and then 2020 happens. Uh, he goes to well, 2022 happens. There's a rally in Selma, North Carolina. And I hear Mark Robinson on stage. Robinson got louder applause line than Donald Trump at the Donald Trump rally. And there are substantially fewer people attending these political events than there were in 2020, 2016. So I see a declining level of enthusiasm among Trump's base, in part because the lines are just so repetitive, so familiar that it doesn't resonate as much as it did when you first heard build the wall, because now people can say, well, what if what'd you do to build the wall? And so I'm seeing less enthusiasm among the most hardline conservatives. They're still going to support Trump, but it, there's visibly less enthusiasm on the ground I'm seeing than past elections. Well, cycles. it's boring and it's all about him now. It's not about what he's going to do for you by building a wall. It's about his, his victimhood. Uh, but Michael, as a professor of history, outside of Jim Jones or David Koresh, or P.T. Barnum, have we had a candidate like this that seems to have mesmerized his base? To, to the extent that Donald Trump has locked in the Republican base, no. Uh, you know, I, I think certainly political leaders of their parties attract some kind of loyalty, and we see that in voter behavior. Uh, but this is a whole new dynamic that I think Trump has been able to speak discreetly and concretely to a disgruntled, dis disaffected group of voters, and they are buying every word that he says. And I think part of this is social psychology, it's part politics, it's a whole mess of human behavior that we're still trying to understand. No matter how you feel about Donald Trump, his uh, legal uh, entanglements uh, may or may not be important in the scheme of things. Uh, to some people, they're absolutely not important. To others, they are disgusting uh, and, and disqualifying. But if it, if, if it doesn't disqualify him, we will live through this. But then there comes the comments he's made recently about our foreign entanglements. In recent weeks, uh, Trump said he would not defend NATO members that don't meet defense spending targets, suggested that he would tell Russia to attack our NATO ally if that ally was considered delinquent in its payments. That shows a shocking lack of understanding in how NATO operates and how it funded, how it's funded. But more importantly, for a serious candidate with a distinct possibility that he will win the White House to say such a thing undermines international security and the faith that our allies need to have in terms of putting their trust in the United States. If our word as a nation is in our bond, we have nothing. Yet most of the people at his rallies cheered those remarks, and prominent Republicans who used to value America's role on the world stage have remained remarkably silent about this. This despite a majority of Americans telling pollsters that our support of NATO is paramount 
So how do you explain this, Michael? What are the implications of it? I think it is certainly a reflection of a neo-isolationist strain that has become very prominent in Republican Party politics. I think the dynamic of Trump saying, you know what, we need to leave NATO, uh, we need to let Russia do whatever they want to, violates so much since World War II, the end of World War II, the, the, the pact, the agreement that was made between European, at the time, Western European nations and the United States, that was sacrosanct. That was a fundamental part of our foreign policy. And the only time that Article 5, which states if there is an attack on one is an attack on every NATO member, the only time that that article has ever been invoked was after September 11th, 2001, when the United States was attacked. Our allies came to our defense. And so what we're seeing is a real attempt to repudiate decades of foreign policy and particularly Reagan policy of strength through military alliances. And it is, it is astounding to see a Republican Party at this point in that vein of foreign policy. Brian, uh, talk to me about voters and what they may be saying about this, because you've got these comments to, by Trump about NATO, et cetera, and the threats he's, he poses to the world order uh, if he were to follow through as president on some of the things he's talked about. And then you've had the comments that he's made about veterans. Uh, he wouldn't go to the cemetery when he was over in Europe uh, for American veterans because he didn't get it. They died. So why would we celebrate them? Uh, he said that uh, he likes uh, 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 veterans who don't get injured or die or, or, or are not held captive because they're and, and he doesn't understand why you would do this, why you would put your life at risk. But they're suckers, he said. This is a state full of military veterans. It's a state that has military bases in it. It's a state full of Republican voters who have hit, uh, up until recently uh, waved the flag and supported these people for their service to the country. What are they saying about these comments? If there's two groups of people you don't want to mess with in North Carolina politics yeah. on conservative sides, it's military members and evangelical voters. And when you've expressed, uh, if you've expressed disgust or disdain toward either of those groups, that's going to hurt uh, politically. Uh, whether it hurts you enough to make people think Joe Biden's better if they've been lifelong conservatives remains to be seen. Uh, you asked, what do voters feel? And talking on the ground with voters, uh, it's a very selfish feeling right now. They feel inflation's been high. Uh, all these things have directly impacted me, but there's not as much thought about the rest of the world or international policy or how international, like if, if we have to invoke uh, Article 5, you know, we're going to see military troops on the ground in Ukraine. So you want to avoid that, presumably, to avoid American troops on the ground and facing battle and, and risking their lives there. But people have a very simplistic view of politics now to where it's me, me, me centered. I want to know how they're going to improve my lives. Whereas in the past with Reagan, I mean, there was there was this existential threat of communism and a fear of 
having to go under desks at school. You know, those were things that people felt tangibly that they don't do today. And, and Patty Reagan has written a book about her parents and her, her changing relationship now that her, both her parents are gone with them and essentially praising her father and her mother, but mostly her father for uh, understanding that we're all in this essentially together, that, that we're all better off and that people's natures are, are at their core good, but we have to be together in this. Uh, a lot of Americans do not want to see a rematch of Donald Trump and, and Joe Biden. But the president, despite his achievements, remains remarkably unpopular. And so when President Biden calls Trump's remarks about NATO dangerous, un-American, shocking, Brian, are voters listening? Are they hearing that? Or are they just discounting it because it's coming from Joe Biden? Well, I think they're hearing it. They just might not care as much as they do about other policy issues. Uh, if there is one thing that can unify America, it's a common enemy over time and time again. It was, you know, Germany, Russia. Now we're we're seeing maybe China could be the the common global threat. Um, and so short of a major international conflict uh, where there's a common enemy all Americans can agree upon, it's it's hard to envision that type of message resonating at this stage. Michael, uh, as of September of last year, North Carolina had about 7.9 million voting eligible adults and 7.3 of those are registered voters with the highest number of these voters, 36 percent, I believe it was, identifying as independents. How much of a role in the upcoming North Carolina primary are independents likely to play? And what about uh, their role in the general? Typically, what we tend to find is that if you are registered unaffiliated, in general, you tend to be one of two types. You tend to be a masked partisan, meaning that you are a consistent person who votes consistently in the same party year after year after year, or you tend to be a floater, an unmoored voter. And what we have seen is that generally what tends to drive these unmoored, unaffiliated voters is the competitiveness at the top of the ticket. And so what we're seeing this year by basically a two to one based on the data so far for early voting, unaffiliateds are breaking two to one to the Republican side because that's where the action is at. That's where the top of the race is really generating the interest. Now, those folks might float back Democratic if there's another you know, contested primary uh, for president in four years. But you know what we tend to see is the unaffiliated voters have influence, but by the time it comes to November, they will have the lowest turnout rate in comparison to the partisan registered voters. And that's not surprising to those of us that study this. We have a Republican-controlled legislature that has made the practice of gerrymandering a science and put their party into the majority of seats in the General Assembly, and they've tried to do the same in the congressional uh, seats as well. Uh, more people self-identify in this state as Democrats than Republicans, 33 to 30 percent. Does that mean that more independents lean Republican normally? And, and if, if not, why aren't we considered a deeply purple state? Well, I, I would contend we are a deeply purple state. It's just that we have a slight red tint to it at the federal mm -hmm. level. At the state level, we have a slight blue tint 
to it. So we are playing out our political history before 2008 very nicely, Republican at the federal level, Democratic at the state level. What I think we need to think about with unaffiliated voters is they generally tend to trend more Republican, but not as Republican as registered Democrats. And there is also this generational dynamic at play for voters over the age of 60. Unaffiliateds tend to be very Republican. For those voters under the age of 45, those unaffiliateds tend to be more Democratic. So we've got this kind of tectonic plates rubbing up against each other. If 2024 shows us a political earthquake, that could be it. We do have other races in this primary coming up in North Carolina. We're going to talk about the impact of the presidential frontrunners on those other races when we come back. It's Charlotte Talks on listener-funded 90.7 WFAE. Support comes from WFAE members and Mazda of South Charlotte, incorporating Mazda's customer-centric vehicle design by making the customer the center of business to create a better car buying experience. More at MazdaOfSouthCharlotte.com. It's Charlotte Talks on WFAE and WFHE. I'm Mike Collins. We're talking politics in advance of the North and South Carolina primaries. Brian Anderson is here, creator of the Anderson Alert Substack newsletter. And Michael Bitzer, professor of politics and history at Catawba College. You just mentioned, Michael, that we, lend, we tend to lean red Republican in national contests for president. Mm-hmm. And I think in all of the recent presidential races, except for uh, President Biden, oh, excuse me, Obama, uh, he won North Carolina the first time around by just a tiny little bit, three-tenths of a percentage point, I think it was. Um, uh, but in, in February, Moody's Analytics, which usually looks at money, they, they forecast that Joe Biden will win North Carolina in this upcoming race by three-tenths of a percentage point, Obama's uh, (laughs) uh, uh, margin of victory. Do you have any update on that prediction? Do you think it's even remotely accurate? And if so, why? (laughs) So I will let Moody's be Moody's and do their modeling. (laughs) They're they're the, they they do the predictive analytics. Uh, I try and hopefully help people understand and explain what's happening. I think North Carolina is on a knife's edge. It is always in my mind the the critical question that we will say ad nauseum come November, tell me who shows up and I'll tell you probably a pretty good guess of who's gonna win. It's all about turnout. There is a small, small percentage of North Carolina voters that flipped from Donald Trump in 2020 to Roy Cooper in 2020, exact same election. But for the most part, we are a stuck battleground state. And what needs to happen on both sides, both for Democrats and Republicans, is the ground game. Flood the airwaves all you want. People are muting you, turning you off. But if you have the ground game operation to get people to show up to vote and actually energize them and mobilize them, that's where the difference, I think, makes. And tell me which side does a better ground game operation. So in the presidential races in the past, Dr. Bitzer, uh, Donald Trump has never won the popular vote. Uh, He's lost it twice. Uh, He has lost one general election. His endorsements uh, in the last several cycles in races around the country have tended, the people he's endorsed have tended to lose their contests. How should we, how should office seekers feel 
about his endorsement? Uh, it, again, it is a two-edged, you know, knife and sword, if you want to take that analogy. In terms of energizing, mobilizing a base, that helps. But the concern is the folks in the middle, as Brian has, has articulated, and the energy on the other side, you know, the question is, how far do I flaunt that endorsement by Donald Trump? And it doesn't backfire on me. And we've seen this play out, I think, time and time again. The track record of special elections so far, you know, everybody has discounted Democrats. They've done pretty good in all of these special elections. It won't be like the November general election, but that dynamic is pretty astounding to see how much that has played when Democrats control the White House. And that's a natural barrier to their energy. So we have a, a, a two front runners in the gubernatorial race on the Democratic side, although there are other candidates. Josh Stein, the attorney general, appears to be the front runner on, in the Democratic race. And Lieutenant Governor Mark Robinson appears to be the front runner in the Republican contest. Will Biden be a boost or a drag on that race? And will Trump be a boost or a drag in the Republican version? Michael. I mean, bo both sides are going to use both as as to their advantage. Mark Robinson's going to say Biden's been terrible for our economy and look how great things were under Trump and and how much your lives were better under his presidency. And Josh Stein's going to say uh, Donald Trump is very extreme, just like my opponent, Mark Robinson, who wants abortion bans and wants to take this country and North Carolina back rather than forward. So, I mean, both sides are going to use the president as a reflection of extremism in their view. Now, who has the better case for that? Clearly from all available evidence, Donald Trump is a more extreme candidate than Joe Biden. And just with regard to the Moody's report, publicly, privately, I've not met one Democrat who feels confident that Biden's <laughs> going to win North Carolina. So that 0.3 win uh, that they have, I, I wouldn't put too much stake into or certainly wouldn't make one feel confident about Well, that. getting back to the endorsement uh, record that Donald Trump has, uh, Trump endorsed Lieutenant Governor Mark Robinson in the governor's race, and he made that announcement last year at the state right. GOP convention. He did not, Brian, immediately respond to your request for a comment about that endorsement at the time has he since well mark robinson's very happy with with donald trump's endorsement and let's 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 be clear on that donald trump is the most important endorsement you want to have in a primary election if you have trump and you have money it's almost impossible to not get the 30% to at least have a chance of winning the nomination outright. And for, for folks, you need 30% to win the nomination outright if you're the top top vote getter. In so North the Carolina. lieutenant governor, like Trump, has made some very controversial statements over the course of his public career. Mark Robinson stands behind those comments, controversial or not. He's not backing down, and they certainly fit in nicely with many aspects of Trumpism. Is that likely to seal the deal? Is that what's what's is that what's making him the front runner in the Republican primary? And even though it makes him more attractive, perhaps to GOP voters, will it help or hurt him in the general? There were a double digit number of candidates when Mark Robinson first ran and he was running his first political campaign. And a reason he won is because 
of his Greensboro City Council speech where he's talking plainly about uh, threats he sees of Democrats are going to come for my guns and, and, and take them and we need to stop that. It's his plain language and his relatability to voters that makes him the GOP frontrunner and why Republicans aren't wavering. The question that remains to be seen is how does he do in a general election? And we saw in 2020 when he was running, uh, there was a lot of money in that race that was against him, yeah. as people might remember. Uh, but Robinson is clearly the GOP presumptive nominee and him and Josh Stein flip a coin. That's who's going to win right now. Uh, but certainly Mark Robinson's past statements on social media, his policy views, uh, they're going to come back to haunt him among independent and moderate voters. You, you uh, reported in, I think it was December, that uh, Donald Trump endorsed lobbyist Addison McDowell in his race for the Greensboro area congressional seat held by retiring Democrat Kathy Manning. He also endorsed Bo Hines. The endorsement was said to have flabbergasted some Republicans, but what kind of an impact has it had on the candidates and their races so far? Yeah, the sixth congressional district race in Greensboro is just one big mess. If, if folks haven't seen the movie Burn After Reading, that's kind of what this race <laughs> has become. Uh, you have Mark Walker, a former congressman who is loathed by Trump, loathed by Phil Berger, loathed by all these Republican leaders, uh, yet he's the most skilled retail politician in this race. He is the best at talking to voters one-on-one, -on -one, winning them over through a good ground game. If you look at Bo Hines, he ran in the Raleigh area back uh, last election cycle, lost to Wiley Nickel and is now going to Charlotte. He has money on his side. At a New York gala, uh, Trump said he was going to be the next congressman. And then about 72 hours later, Trump naturally said, nope, sorry, Bo Hines. I'm actually going to endorse Addison McDowell, a lobbyist who <laughs> most people have probably never heard of. Uh, and there's a lot of behind the scenes mechanics that went into that endorsement especially with Ted Budd propping up McDowell, who used to serve as a district staffer to him. Uh, but what's happening on the ground this week is Donald Trump Jr. is going into that district in Greensboro, holding a number of events for Addison McDowell over the next few days. If you're Walker, if you're Hines, you hope and pray that Donald Trump himself doesn't come into this district because Addison McDowell lacks the name ID that the other two have. If you're Addison McDowell, you just ride the Trump train, hoping that gets you past the threshold necessary and that Hines and Walker can splinter each other off. So, Brian, early voting is underway in North Carolina. This is the first race in which voter ID is required. There was a lot of conversation leading up to this as to whether or not voter ID would be fair to certain voters or disenfranchise them or make it more difficult for them uh, to vote. What have we heard so far in this stretch of early voting, which is just recently underway. What have we heard, if anything, about the impact of voter ID? Well, we also have a test we saw in local elections last year in the Charlotte area with, with voter ID, and there weren't a, a, a lot of reported issues that I'm aware of, of people being turned away. You can also cast provisional ballots, and there's an exemption forms. There's a, there's a number of workarounds uh, to that law as as well and there's tons of id available so if you don't have a driver's license many 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 colleges in this state your student id which every college student has that suffices in, in most campuses um, if you're going to the polls and, and don't have another form of id on hand 
Um, so there's some workarounds. There's lots of uh, identification options. And in fact, Republicans aren't happy with the voter ID law, thinking it's it's not as far as it should be. Uh, but we'll see if there's any issues in, in March. Certainly, it's more likely some people will be turned away, but how many, we don't know. Donald Trump has had a falling out with Ron McDaniel, who for years now has run the Republican National Committee. Perhaps the falling out has something to do with her relationship or being related to Mitt Romney in some distant way. Uh, She's in her fourth term in that position, but she will likely step down when uh, Trump becomes the party's nominee. And he has already nominated uh, or anointed Michael Watley to replace her. He is the chair of the North Carolina Republican Party. Why, out of all the Republicans in all the gin joints in all the world, uh, did did Trump choose Watley, Brian? Loyalty. That that that's your one word answer. Trump praise it. Trump wants people who will be loyal to him. And in North Carolina in 2020. Michael Watley was nothing but loyal to Trump. When Trump was talking about mail-in ballots in the COVID pandemic era and causing concern, Watley was pretty much by his side in that in that messaging and in a key swing state. Uh, it is worth noting that. Uh, oh, sorry. Go no, ahead. No. Go, go ahead. No, go ahead. Well, go I, ahead, I, I was just going to say that uh, for for Trump. Personal loyalty matters above all else. Uh, and to have Watley in a swing state and to have your your daughter-in-law, Laura Trump, a family member yeah. as co-chair, that, that makes for a loyal pairing. So, uh, Michael, tr- Trump has been very negative in the past about his predecessors in the Oval Office, including President George W. Bush, for whom Watley served as a senior White House official. He was also a senior advisor to the Bush-Cheney campaign. Why is he so attractive to Donald Trump then? I, I can't say anything more than what Brian has said. It's loyalty. And I would add as an example, remember when Donald Trump was impeached for the second time? He had already been out of office. The Senate was considering the conviction of it. And Senator Richard Burr cast his first vote to say, we shouldn't be considering this. This is, he's out of office. There's nothing we can do. But then when that passed and said, yes, we are going to hold a vote on him, Richard Burr cast a guilty vote. And that became an anathema to North Carolina Republicans. And what happened? The North Carolina Republican Party formally censured the senior Republican elected official through the chair of the Republican Party in this state, and that was Michael Watley. The, the, the nominee of a political party and the person who ultimately occupies the White House is the head of the party, and they generally get their way with regard to who runs the party in terms of the Republican and the Democratic National Committees. But there is this uh, concern, I suppose, on, on the part of some, particularly when it comes to Lara Trump, Laura Trump, about nepotism. Nikki Haley's campaign manager has called Trump's moves with regard to the RNC rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. She says uh, uh, that Nikki Haley would, uh, she says that she, if she was the nominee, would fire everybody at the RNC, followed by a full and complete audit of the gross misuse of funds, her words, with a merit-based process to name a new chair. And that indicates that she, at least, sees these moves by Trump and, indeed, his candidacy to be a death warrant for the GOP and that he's already corrupted the RNC and will continue to do so if he gets his way with who runs it. Any 
Does that hold water at all? I mean, I, I haven't met a voter who says, no, but I love the RNC. <laughs> Uh, that, that's, that's not exactly a top, it's probably not even in the top 30 issues that voters are concerned about, but what they are concerned about is the direction the Republican party is going. And this is a critical moment where you have to decide if you're a Republican, are we the party of Trump or are we the party of Reagan? Because it's becoming increasingly clear you can't have it both ways. And I think it's already been decided. So what are the major issues for North Carolina voters in this primary on both sides of the aisle? Brian. Well, for Democrats, a, a critical issue that they've been talking about is abortion access. They're presenting Republicans as as extreme on this issue, uh, wanting to do more than the current 12-week ban in most abortions. Uh, that's a critical issue I hear on the ground from Democrats and the issue of democracy and Trump being a threat to that. Uh, for Republicans, their biggest uh, issue right now, immigration, economy, those are probably the top two. Can we juggle and, and walk at the same time, Michael? Can, can, can Democrats and or Republicans use those two issues to their advantage, or they have to concentrate on one or the other? They'll, they'll use their uh, policy issues to their advantage, and it will be two very distinct campaigns focused on, on very distinct perspectives when it comes to all this, and the voters will just have to decide which one they adhere to. So voters aren't happy with either of these can candidates. Do you see a possibility that Trump is disqualified because of the Supreme Court uh, ruling that's coming down shortly, or he drops out of the race because he's turned off voters, or he can't concentrate on the race because of his legal woes? And if that happens, could Nikki Haley step up? And if that happens, would there be an open Democratic convention to pick somebody other than Biden? I have 20 seconds. It's Trump versus Biden. No, That's not it, huh? holding breath for open convention there. No <laughs> matter how much what reporters love chaos. <laughs> we need some excitement in the late summer. Okay, that's all we have to time for. Uh, Michael Bitzer, uh, professor of history and politics at Catawba College. Brian Anderson, the creator of the Anderson Alert Substack newsletter. He covers North Carolina politics like a blanket. Thank you for the hour. Celebrating 25 years on the air, Charlotte Talks with Mike Collins is a production of 90.7 WFAE. Support for Charlotte Talks comes from Mazda of South Charlotte. Our executive producer is Wendy Herkey. The senior producers are Gabe Altieri and Sarah D'Elia. Our engineer is Joby Sprinkle. For more information about Charlotte Talks, to listen to past episodes, or subscribe to the podcast, visit wfae.org slash charlotte talks. Additional support for WFAE programming comes from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support comes from WFAE members and Mazda of South Charlotte, focused on applying Mazda's customer-centric approach for vehicle design to car buying and servicing in order to create an experience centered around the customer. More at MazdaofSouthCharlotte.com.